Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church, Avon Park, Florida. Paul's primary strategy was preaching. This was his regular practice when he went to a new town. What did he do? He went straight to the synagogue and he did what? Preached. This kind of faith, Paul says, only comes by hearing the gospel. That's how God chooses to save people. What the world sees as foolish is powerful to you as a Christian. Welcome to the Midweek Edition of Living Faith. The Midweek Edition features teaching from our Wednesday night student Bible study, FBC 180. Our current series is Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. Did you know that our corporate worship time on Sunday morning is just a sample, a foretaste of heaven? As believers gather to sing praises, offer prayers and hear God speak to us through His Word, we are, in essence, rehearsing for eternity where we will, with the angels and the saints from every tribe and tongue, join in to honor and glorify God through Jesus Christ. This series is helping our students understand the importance and centrality of corporate worship on Sunday morning by teaching them what the Bible has to say about why and how we worship as a believing community. So get your Bible and pen and let's join in on Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. have ever been bored during the preaching? I mean, yeah, you don't have to be too holy. And I'm not talking about Pastor John, obviously. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking about other preachers. We've been, you've been bored. I, I think any preacher probably gets bored during their own preaching sometimes. It's something that takes getting used to, something that takes being uh, uh, taught what it's all about. Some of us come into church, maybe you've never been in a church before, maybe you're kind of in and out of church, maybe you don't go every Sunday, maybe you go to a church where the sermon is maybe 25 minutes long, maybe like here you go to a church where it's 40 to 45 minutes long. Some churches have sermons for an hour. Um, some in different traditions and ethnicities have church all day long, and they'll have preaching and then singing and then some more preaching and then some more singing, and then they might get home sometime after lunch. But all that to say, preaching is important in most Christian denominations. Even in churches that don't necessarily believe the Bible to be the inerrant, inspired word of God, they don't take it very seriously, they'll still have some guy get up in the middle of their worship service and preach or teach from some portion of Scripture, regardless of how poorly it's interpreted and preached. So what is it about preaching and people standing up and proclaiming something about the word of God that Christians, no matter what denomination they belong to, over all the centuries that there has been a Christian church, what is it about preaching that Christians find so important that it's one of the few things that has stayed constant in Christian worship since the very beginning? Why do we come to church every Sunday and the focal point is when a man here at First Baptist, it's Pastor John or one of our preachers, that stands up, opens the Bible, reads a portion of it, and then proceeds for about 40 minutes to explain it to you. What's so important about that? And that's our question tonight. Look at this question with me. Why do we have a sermon every Sunday? Read this with me. Because God uses preaching to proclaim who he is and what he has done to redeem us and to increase our faith in Christ. You can fill that out, but very quickly... We have preaching every week because we need God to speak to us. And how does God speak to us now in the New Testament church? How, do we see, how does he speak to us? Through the Bible and through someone preaching it and teaching it to us, explaining it to us. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 
verse 23 through 25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's a time in your life when you know you were an unbeliever, you might have known about God, you might have known about Jesus, but you didn't know what it means, it meant to put your faith and trust in the gospel. You didn't know what it meant to be saved and to know that your home is in heaven because you were relying on the work of Christ. There's a difference simply between believing in God and believing in Jesus and even maybe believing that he died and rose again and believing on it, leaning on it and trusting in it for your salvation. There's a time in your life that must come when you go from unbelief to belief. When you are spiritually dead and the Holy Spirit by a miracle brings you to spiritual life and enables you to believe and repent and turn to Jesus. That's called conversion. I want to press upon you the importance of conversion. If that's not happened in your life, if you're just kind of coasting along, you know, I'm coming to youth group, I might even come to church, I understand who God is, I believe in him, I understand who Jesus is because I talk about him every week, Pastor Matt talks about him, but I haven't yet come to a place where I put my faith and my trust and I'm relying upon him. Your heart needs to be changed. That's what it means to be born again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the nighttime. He was a Pharisee, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again, converted, saved, changed. And the apostle John talks about it this way. If you believe in Jesus in that way, you have passed from death into life. It's as if you've already passed from hell into heaven. So if there are questions in your heart about your conversion you don't know what that means yet. Talk to me after. Find an adult, talk to them, find another student, and say, I need you to go with me and talk about this to an adult because I need to know what it means to be saved, to be born again. Peter, number one here, says that that birth, the rebirth, being born again comes from the word. Being born again by the word. We are born again by the word of God. That means if anybody asks you, what's the, what, what, how are you born again? Through the word of God. I heard it, I believed it, I was born again, I was converted, I was saved. Number two, the word, the Bible, the scriptures, whatever you want to call it, is living and eternal. Peter says the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. And number three, the word of God must be preached. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, this word, okay, don't miss this. He equates the word of God with the good news, or another word we use for good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means when you proclaim Jesus, when you proclaim the good news of Jesus, that he lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again, you are proclaiming the word of God. And that is the only way people can be saved. That's the only way people can be saved is that they hear that message. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. We were here briefly last week. I, I want to revisit it because it's important. Romans chapter 10. 
a lot of churches are involved in um, what we call mercy ministries. Mercy ministries are those things that Jesus taught the church to do. Um, clothe the naked, visit the people in prison, care for the orphans and the widows, uh, feed the hungry, give a place to stay for the homeless. These are things that the church should be doing. Not the church institutional, but the church you people. Some people have equated doing those good things with the gospel. And this is what we call the social gospel, that simply doing nice things for people has been confused with sharing the gospel with them. As in, if I give a glass of cold water to someone that's thirsty, but I don't share the literal gospel with my mouth, it doesn't matter because I'm still sharing the gospel somehow. That's false because you have to share the actual words of the gospel. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, now just follow his reasoning. He reasons this out for you very simply. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. They won't be in hell. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So you have to call on him with your mouth. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Verse 17, big deal. So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Number one, salvation comes through faith. Okay, we're saved by God's grace that we access through faith. That's that difference. Faith is not just simply mentally acknowledging that something is true, okay? Um, I, I can believe all day long in the principles of mathematics, and I do. I believe they're true. I have no idea how most of them work, and I do not use them on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not relying on them for anything. But you will, right? You, you all will use math every single day, so the teachers tell you. You'll use math and English and everything every single day, so be good students, right? I don't rely on those things, though, even though I know they are true. There are certain facts that we know and understand and say, yes, that's true, but we don't build our life around them. We know that the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776, at least you should. That's a fact. It's a historical fact that's important for us as Americans, but most of us don't live day in and day out relying on that for our happiness and our joy and the center of our life. But when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it has to go beyond knowing that God exists. It has to go beyond knowing that Jesus was born in the manger, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again and ascended to heaven. Those things are all important. They're central. But it goes beyond simply acknowledging that those things happened. Faith is putting your trust and casting everything that you are on of that truth, like falling down on it and resting on it so that it, it's your total resting place, that Jesus and his gospel is your source of grace, your source of salvation. It's your answer. It's your key to heaven. 
that you know when you stand before God and he says, why on earth should I let you, a sinner, come into my presence? That's your only answer. The work of Jesus Christ on my behalf and I believed in him. That's what it means to put your faith and trust in the gospel. So one, salvation comes through faith. Number two, this kind of faith, Paul says, only comes by hearing the gospel. Now there are ministries, obviously, for those who cannot hear. This doesn't mean audible necessarily hearing the word preached, but it means somehow receiving it, comprehending it, being communicated the truth of the gospel, and with your heart acknowledging that it's true and believing in it. Okay, so this goes beyond just like hearing it with your ears. It means hearing it with your soul, receiving it in your heart. But you do have to have that hearing side of it. Faith comes by hearing the gospel. Three, you can only hear if someone is a preacher. And preacher might sound kind of um, intense to you because you think of someone like Pastor John or, or someone like Pastor Lehman standing up behind a pulpit, you know, with a tie, maybe a suit or whatever, and preaching. Some of us might come from denominations in which the preaching actually gets kind of intense and there's hollering and shouting and, and uh, hanky waving. You don't even know what that is, do you? Um, that's not necessarily the New Testament word for preach. It simply means to proclaim, to proclaim. It simply means to say it. So a preacher is something, it's just simply a proclaimer, someone who speaks it out, okay? So Paul is saying that in order to be saved by Christ, you have to first believe, you have to call on him. To call on him, you have to believe in him. To believe in him, you have to have heard about him. And in order to have heard about him with your ears, someone had to have told you that. They had to tell you the facts about the gospel for you to be able to believe on him and then call on him and be saved. You see Paul's logic here? Faith comes by hearing. It's important to do nice things for people. It's important to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we say, and give people a cold drink of water and clothe them and feed them. But we have to go beyond that and share the gospel with them too. Or they'll just, you know, be hungry or be fed and be clothed and then still die and their soul will be lost. The gospel is key and they have to have hearing, and they have to hear from a preacher. Look at Acts chapter 20. We can see what Paul did here in Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of these, those who are among you, I've gone out proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day, this is Paul talking, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word overseers, same word for pastor, bishop, or elder. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's false teachers. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Number one, pastors are to preach all of God's word all of God's word. 
There are parts of God's word that are not as popular or not as widely accepted as other parts. Everyone loves the Jesus who says, blessed are the meek and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the peacemakers. Everyone loves the Jesus who says, feed the hungry and, and, and shelter the homeless and be kind to others and love them. What do you think they think about the Jesus who calls those who don't believe in him a brood of vipers? What do you think, he, what do you think the world thinks about the Jesus who says to those who don't believe in him, he calls them children of the devil? You can't believe in me because you're children of the devil and only those who are drawn by the spirit can believe in me. That's the hard line Jesus that is sometimes hard for us to understand and is certainly hard for the world to accept. But pastors, preachers like Pastor John, who faithfully teaches the word of God, are called and that they receive this super responsibility for which they will be judged extra to teach us everything in the Bible. Not just the parts that are comfortable, not just the parts that are nice, not just the parts that we think are helpful to our daily lives now, but to preach all of it, uncomfortable or not. Number two. Pastors shepherd, which we, the, the word pastor comes from the word shepherd, God's flock by teaching, feeding them the word of God. The whole idea of our pastor as our shepherd is the fact that he leads us and guides us into truth by the Holy Spirit, and he feeds us by giving us the word of God. We come to church hungry to receive from God the word. Um, that song that we sing sometimes, uh, speak, O Lord, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. So the word of God being preached to us, to believers, is like food. I want to admonish you once again. Now, I know that we, we, we all have to grow up and we all have to mature, and there's some things that we're not going to appreciate until we mature spiritually and, and physically and emotionally and mentally and everything else. But there, there should be something inside of you, if you are a believer, that longs for the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. It, it, do dead people feel hunger pains? No, they don't. So spiritually dead people, do you think spiritually dead people, unsaved people, do you think that they experience spiritual hunger? No. Do you think they long for the word of God and crave it? No. So tonight I would I'd call you to examine yourself. Now I'm not saying you're never gonna get bored. I'm not saying you're never gonna zone out. I'm not saying you're gonna wake up every single Sunday morning bright and early, ready to go and get to church and hear the word of God. But there has to be something about you that loves and longs for the truth of the word of God because for Christians, it's like food. It's like being fed and filled up with the goodness of God. If you don't know that feeling, you don't have that longing, you don't really care, I implore you just to do a little soul searching tonight and ask God if you belong to him. And if not, it's very simple. Faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'll make you one of his and make you want to hear him speak to you. Number three, preaching keeps us from following false teachers. If the truth is being faithfully proclaimed from the scripture, which it is here, then you know the difference between truth and error. 
And so if we're talking about the deity of Christ or the, the godhood of the Holy Spirit, and then you go talk to a Mormon who rejects the Trinity, or Jehovah's Witness who rejects the doctrine that Jesus is God, you know from being taught these things from the Bible that they are in error. And then you are able to feed them the truth, whether or not they really want it. Sometimes, most times they don't. Listening to solid preaching helps ground you in your faith, keep you in the truth. Paul says, when I die and when I go away, Paul says, I know, and he's crying about it. You hear him talks about he wept day in and day out, imploring with them not to follow false teaching. Paul says, I know that when I die, there are going to be some people, even from your own congregation, that are going to rise up and teach false things. And he says, don't believe it. Remember what you were taught. So if you're dozing off on Sunday morning, if you're not paying attention, if you're not receiving the truth of God's word, you're not being equipped to deal with false teaching. Let's look at where preaching even came from. This whole idea comes from uh, Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Good Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Sunday mornings we are in the book of what? Amos. Amos is an Old Testament prophet. By the time Amos was living, the kingdom of Israel was split into how many nations? Two. There was the northern kingdom of northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? And Amos was warning them of judgment that was coming. If you've been paying attention on Sunday morning, you know that the northern kingdom was going to fall to Assyria. And Assyria was going to lead them away, and not only lead them away into exile, but they were going to intermarry, have children with the Israelite women, so that that whole race in the north was mixed. It would not be purely Israelite anymore, purely Hebrew. It would be a mixed race of Hebrew, Gentile, Syrian, and everything else. The southern kingdom, however, does anybody remember what their punishment was going to be? Exile to where? Babylon. Exile to Babylon. Now, the thing that God did for them in the south, because they were the tribe of Judah out of which Jesus was to come, he kept them together. Even though they were exiled, they were exiled as a nation, stayed together, and they were sent back as a nation. So they were not intermarried. They were purely a Hebrew race. When they came back from exile, Nehemiah begged the king, can I go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Can I go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? And the king sends him back and says, fine, enough is enough. You and some of your people can go back and begin to rebuild the walls. After a time, that same king began to let some of the Hebrews go back to their home city of Jerusalem. So the exile was coming to an end, and this nice, you know, I don't know if he was you know, a believer or not necessarily, he was allowing the people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it and to establish their homes again. Now, after 70 years of being in exile, it's just like the Hebrews were 400 years in slavery to Egypt. They had forgotten some things, and maybe they had become less familiar with the law of God. They've maybe forgotten some of the stories of Moses and how God brought them from Egypt into the promised land. Maybe they've forgotten some of those things. So when they get back to Jerusalem, they do this special ceremony in which the law of God the Old Testament scriptures that they had to that point, the Torah, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were brought out before the people, and the people were at last in their homeland 
hearing the scriptures read to them again. And here is how it happens. Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkajai, Hashem, <laughs> these are great names, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. Listen to all this imagery. They built a box for him to stand on. He opens the book in front of everyone. He's elevated. And as he opened it, all the people stood. That's powerful. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed down their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatai, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Pelai, the Levites. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So number one, the people needed to hear from their God. Seventy years exiled away from their homeland, the people needed to hear a word from their covenant God who said, you are mine, out of all the nations I have chosen you. And now I've brought you back to your homeland, and I'm giving you this opportunity to turn to me. And the people understand that, and they say, Ezra, read us the law of God that we may hear it. Number two, God uses his ministers to proclaim his word to the people. He uses a priest named Ezra to read it. And then he uses all of the priestly Levites to not only read it to the people, but what did they do? They helped them understand it. They explained it. So there was something further than just reading it to you. There was giving the sense, it says, giving the understanding so that you can understand it and apply it. Number three, the ministers help the people understand the law. Okay, back to the New Testament. Luke chapter 4. Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 16. This is after Jesus had been baptized, after he went into the wilderness for temptation, and he's beginning his public ministry. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth, that's his hometown. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth, that's his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, that means something he did all the time, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now let me ask you a question. 
Isaiah, he ministered before Jesus. Hundreds of years, Isaiah wrote those words. Now Jesus stands in a synagogue, which would have been like a little meeting place for Jewish people in their hometown. It wasn't the temple. There were no sacrifices there. It was for the sole purpose of reading and teaching the law day in and day out and on the Sabbath. Jesus goes here and reads this very prophecy about himself. Okay, that's powerful stuff. He reads this prophecy about himself to the people. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll. I love this. It's like dropping the mic. He rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Number one, don't miss this. Jesus uses the scripture to preach about himself. Let me ask you a question. What things could Jesus and did Jesus do in his ministry to prove that he was the son of God? What, what, what things did he do? Miracles like water into wine, healing people, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. Jesus could have kicked off his ministry in his hometown with any number of signs and wonders that would have made the people marvel and believe him maybe. Maybe if he would have went to Nazareth and healed some blind people or called some lame men to walk or even raise the dead, maybe then they would say, hey, this Jesus is something special. We need to follow him. But what does he do? He goes to the synagogue, to the church. He goes in. He doesn't speak of his own authority. He gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, puts it down in front of him and reads it. And then he gives the sense, which is basically, this is about me. And they're filled with wrath because he won't do a sign for them. He won't do a miracle. He simply proclaims the word. It should be astonishing to you and to me that the son of God who could do anything to make people believe in him goes into a simple building with simple people, opens up an ancient scroll and reads words. He could have done anything. He reads to them the scripture and preaches to them. Number two, some will listen to sound teaching. Some heard Jesus say these things and surely embraced him. Number three, some will be angered by preaching. A lot of people will not ever step foot back in a Bible-believing church because we use the term their toes were stepped on. Anybody know what that means? The preacher the preacher got a little too personal with his message this week. Something cut to the quick. Something hit home, and it made people uncomfortable. He might have called out some sort of sin that that person or you might be practicing. And that little feeling called conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon you. And some people who the Spirit leads to repentance... He brings them to him. Some people feel that cut in their heart and they say, oh my, I'm a sinner and I need to repent. Some people though, they hear that and it makes them angry. How dare you judge me? How dare you say that I'm doing something wrong? You're just a preacher. You're just a man. You can't say that. It's not Pastor John talking. Who is it? God, by his word. It happened to Jesus. 
This is significant. Jesus, the son of God who knew all things, he knew what he could possibly do to attract a large crowd and to keep them. Jesus could have drawn people and kept them by coercion, by simply doing a miracle and changing their hearts in front of them. He could have done that to everybody. I've heard this statement recently. Jesus was looking for followers, not just fans. There's lots of people who are fans of Jesus. And they'll wear the WWJD bracelets, well, not anymore, like 20 years ago. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying. They do any number of things to associate themselves with Jesus. They want to drop his name every once in a while. But they're no more than just fans. Listeners from the outside that have nothing to do with their Lord and Savior. If you're going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to call yourself saved, you have to follow him. It doesn't happen to everyone. Remember that doctrine of election. The spirit changes some hearts and the spirit leaves some hearts hardened. Not because he wants them to be hardened, but because they're already hardened. He's leaving them in the state they were already in. But for some, he makes them alive and brings them to faith in Jesus. So if it's good enough for Jesus to simply preach and let God do his work, it should be enough for us. Okay, two more places and I'll be done. Look in Acts chapter 17, right after Luke, after John, Acts 17. Not only was it good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for the apostles. Let me ask you a question. Did the apostles, the disciples, did they do miracles? Yes, they did. <laughs> Very early on in the book of Acts, Peter goes into the temple. There's a lame man begging for gold. Peter says, I'll give you something better than gold. Get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And he does. Peter raises people from the dead. Did you know that during Paul's ministry, the apostle Paul, people went to him and got pieces of cloth from his robes and took them to the sick and the dying and they were healed. The apostles did signs and wonders. One person was healed simply by the shadow of St. Peter passing over them as he walked by. There was that kind of, forgive the language, it's very charismatic, there was that kind of anointing on the apostles. But they didn't use it all the time. Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 17, sorry, verse 1. 17, verse 1, here's Paul. This is the first thing he does when he comes into town. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue, you know, the meeting place of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, listen to that language, that means he did it all the time. This is what he did all the time. And on three Sabbath days, that means for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Paul could have done anything he wanted. He could have gone in, set up a healing, signs and wonders crusade, people being healed, thousands being saved. But it says this was his custom. This was his regular practice when he went to a new town. What did he do? He went straight to the synagogue and he did what? Preached. Ministered the word of God from the scriptures. 
not his own authority. So number one, the apostolic practice. That means the, the practice of the apostles was preaching. Number two, Paul's primary strategy was preaching. Number three, some were saved, others rejected. Does it mean that the preaching had failed? No. Does it mean that they should have tried something different than preaching? No. God's will was accomplished through the preaching. Whether it was the salvation of some or the hardening of some, God's will was done. Lastly, I'm just going to tell you two things. You don't have to turn to these scriptures. Just listen. John chapter 6, there's one miracle that Jesus did that is proclaimed. It's written down in all four Gospels. Only one miracle that Jesus did is told in every single Gospel. Anybody know what that miracle is? Except being raised from the dead. A miracle he did for people. The feeding of the 5,000. This was a great miracle. If you were a follower of Jesus, you show up. You sit down, you listen to Jesus talk, you see some miracles, then he feeds you. It's a miracle, and you get a free lunch out of it, or a free dinner, or whatever. That's a great thing. That'll draw lots of people, won't it? A free meal. There's something called the bait-and-switch tactic. I'm not a fisherman. I don't know if it has anything to do with fishing. It sounds like it does. <laughs> the basic thing of the bait-and-switch tactic is really a business scheme that if you dangle something that people want in front of them, they'll come and they'll be attracted to that thing, whatever it is. You promise a free meal. You promise well, pizza or games or something. You dangle something that attracts people, and they're like, ooh, pizza. You know, and then they get close enough, and you switch it. There's the bait and switch. You bring them in with the nice thing, and then gotcha. It's a business thing. You, know, you see the sign outside McDonald's that says, I don't know, buy one, get one free Big Macs, whatever. You go inside, you probably are going to get more than just your two Big Macs. You know, you're probably going to get some fries for you and whoever you're with. Hopefully, you're with somebody else eating two Big Macs and um, some drink. You know, they know they're going to get some business out of you. That's, that's the bait and switch tactic. Unfortunately, churches have turned to that same tactic. And you see churches trying to appeal to people with any number of things baiting you with that nice little thing, and then trying, trying their hardest to sneak the gospel in wherever they can. And the strategy is this. Maybe if we do enough silly things to get people here, then they'll hear the gospel, and then they might be saved. Now, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? We want people to come, yes. We want people to hear the gospel and be saved. The problem is, Jesus told us how we're supposed to do it. The apostles showed us how to do it. Did they say, hey, go out and dangle the next best thing in front of people to get them here and then preach to them and hope they'll get saved? Is that what Paul did? Is that what Jesus did? Right after feeding the 5,000, Jesus said some very hard things. That's when he called them children of the devil. That's when he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And if you're going to be one of my disciples, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, he didn't mean the, the Catholic understanding of the, or the Lord's Supper. He, he meant take part with me. You have to die with me. Guess how many people stayed around after Jesus said those things? Not very many. Now, did you see Jesus like a salesman going after them saying, wait, 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 wait. I didn't mean all that. Come, come back. I'm going to sweeten the pot a little bit with some more stuff. Here's some more fish and bread. No. 
He said, let them go. They weren't my followers. The disciples come to him. And guess what the disciples, the true followers, say to Jesus? Did they say this? I'm just going to leave it to your imagination. Lord, we're not going to go away. To whom shall we go? Where else shall we go? Did they say, who else is going to feed us all the time? Nope. Did they say, who's going to heal our sickness all the time? No. They said, who else has the words of life? Only you, Jesus, have the word of God, and we're going to follow you. Let the others go. Let the fans fall by the wayside. Jesus wants the followers. Jesus wants those who want the word of God. Let's read this last thing together, corporate worship and eternity. Read it with me. Corporate worship is a foretaste of eternity as we hear God speak to us through the preaching of his word by elders and pastors who have been called and gifted by God. It seems so simple. It actually seems foolish. If you, were gonna, if you told a business person that ran a high-end high, you know, high corporation and they said, well, what's your marketing scheme? Oh, we're just going to preach the Bible. You don't, have a, you don't have something to dangle in front of the people to attract them? No, no, we're just going to preach. You don't have something to show them, to entertain them, to get them there? No, we're just going to preach. Well, that sounds foolish. You know what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1? The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's so that when you get to heaven and God is judging you, you cannot boast in anything anyone has done. I can't go and boast in my church's music, my church's programs, my church's events, some experience I had. The only thing I can say is I heard the gospel and the Lord opened my eyes and I believed. That's how God chooses to save people. What the world sees as foolish is powerful to you as a Christian. And if you don't understand what that means, what the gospel is, what it means to have faith in Jesus, please talk to me after this. In a group this size, there are certainly numbers of you who have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't even know what that language means. Come talk to me after. Come talk to an adult after, and they'll bring you to me. Talk to one of your friends. Say, come with me. I'm embarrassed. I'm scared, which is silly. You shouldn't be. Come talk to me. Make it final. If you are a believer, read the Bible, digest it, and come to church to hear it proclaimed to your soul. That's the center of your spiritual life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day, this evening that we've gathered together to worship you, to hear your word proclaimed to us. I ask that you take it, plant it deep in our hearts, change us by your Holy Spirit, and use your power to convict us of our sin. Use your word to give us a spiritual life. For those here tonight who may not know what it means to have faith and trust in you as their Lord and Savior, I ask that you give them courage and boldness to ask what that means. There's no shame in it. By your Holy Spirit, convict them and draw them to faith in you. Allow their friends to be bold in sharing the gospel with them. Move tonight in a mighty way. Bring people to you. And if we are believers, Lord, convict us of our neglect of the scripture and make us love it and long for it. And ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. That's all for this midweek edition of Living Faith. 
Listen in every week for more from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. You don't want to miss any of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Roll Down, Judgment and Restoration in the Prophecy of Amos. Our senior pastor, John Beck, will be walking us through that important Old Testament book in the coming weeks. For more information about FBC 180, the youth and family ministry of First Baptist Church, you can go to our website at fbc180.com. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash First Baptist Avon Park Youth. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash FBCAP180. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. Our Sunday service begins at 1045 in the morning. You can find all this information and more at fbcap.net. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time on Living Faith.